All right, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And before I get into the outline for that chapter, let's bow our heads together and we'll start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening that we have this opportunity, this privilege to open up the Word of God and to study what is one of my favorite chapters, Lord. I pray that you would please speak to the hearts of, of your people tonight. I pray that you'd help each student to grasp what is said, not from my mouth primarily, but from the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would guide our Bible study, and as we just sang, Lord, guide our homes. Guide us as individuals. Thank you for Christian homes. Thank you for a godly environment we can enjoy each other in. Please help us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans 8. I'm going to break it into three parts. Verses 1 to 13. The law of the Spirit and of sin. Law of the Spirit and of sin. Verses 1 to 13. Part 2 is named Led of the Spirit, but I'm going to break that into three sub-points. Verses 14 to 17. Witness of the Spirit. This is all part of being led of the Spirit. There's the witness of the Spirit. And then verses 18 to 25, waiting for the Spirit. And then verses 26 to 30, work of the Spirit. So there's the witness of the Spirit, 14 to 17, waiting for the Spirit, 18 to 25, work of the Spirit, verses 26 to 30. And then the chapter closes, verses 31 to 39, The third point in the outline, love of the Spirit. Now, as we read at the end of the chapter, uh, you won't find that phrase, love of the Spirit. You do find that in other places in the Bible. But we are going to be looking at the love of God. And this chapter, of all the chapters in the New Testament, and, and this is not the only one that focuses on the Holy Spirit, but I believe for 39 verses you're going to learn more about the work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life than any other chapter is going to give you. Now, most people, when they think about the Holy Spirit, they they generally turn to 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 12, chapter 14. And the reason they do so is because of what they hear in a lot of churches. In chapter 12, legitimately, you do read about the Holy Spirit there and spiritual gifts. It's not that you're going to get bad information there. Please don't take it like that. But I don't think those are the primary places that focus on the overall work of the Spirit. Right? Spiritual gifts is just part of what the Holy Spirit does in a believer's life. Romans 8, though, it, I, I just can't think of any other place in the New Testament that does such a great job of showing us what the Spirit will do. All right, so chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then in your King James Bible, the verse finishes by saying, who walk not not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It, It gives a condition to the condemnation. Now, there are a lot of new translations in English that leave off that second half of the verse as I pointed out. In the King James, we have Essentially, I'm going to say three parts because when you look into the textual criticism of this and the ancient manuscripts that have been found, you will find 
three different results. Certain manuscripts have just the first half, up until Christ Jesus, and then it cuts off there, ends there. And then there are other manuscripts that have who walk not after the flesh, and then it stops there. But then there are a sufficient amount of manuscripts that have the entire verse that ends with, but after the Spirit. Now, the reason I believe that, and, and guys, when we tried to look back in history as to why certain manuscripts got copied the way they did, we get into forensic science, which is to say we look at the evidence and then we try to create a story that makes sense of the evidence. But it's not as if the scribe sat down and said, I read this verse and I'm only going to copy half of it because only half of it makes sense to me. Or, or vice versa. This verse doesn't make sense being so short, I'm going to add to it. So when we try to discuss which manuscript is the right one to use, it's very difficult to provide an ironclad argument just using textual history, using just the manuscripts and the history behind them. I believe the proper way to approach textual criticism and to decide which manuscript is right is to look at the context itself. How, now, and I think this is the reason a lot of people feel comfortable with cutting it off after Christ Jesus because they like to say, once you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You will never face the ultimate judgment of being thrown into the lake of fire. And that fits nicely, right, with other verses in the New Testament. So they feel, they feel comfortable to put a full stop after the word Jesus. However, in the context of Romans 8, Paul is going to discuss a different kind of condemnation, a different kind of punishment, if you will, that, that a, a believer can face. If you look at verse 13, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. So we have a permanent condemnation, or we, we could say an eternal condemnation. And if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no fear of that eternal condemnation. Right? You've passed John 5, 24. You shall not come into condemnation, but you've passed from death unto life. So when we look at it from an eternal perspective, no condemnation. But when you look at this earthly life, this temporary or temporal life, you can receive a temporal condemnation or punishment. And we've talked about this on other occasions. You can lose your health. You can lose your testimony. You can lose your family. You can lose your job. Or you can lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, which isn't as temporary, but there are many things you can lose without losing your soul. When you look in the context, you're going to see Paul discussing these two sides of the, of the conversation. Some people walk after the flesh. Some people walk after the Spirit. And he talks about how those two sides will play out. So the context tells me that we need all three parts of verse 1, right? Remember I said some manuscripts stop in various places. I believe the way we have it in, in the King James Bible is the best. Uh, it, it makes the most sense because of the context. All right, so forgive me, I, I don't like to spend a long time talking about manuscript evidence, but I told you in manuscript evidence class that when we got to this uh, verse that we would discuss why this uh, would be the better choice. So. I'm trying to stick to the text and allow the text to tell us which manuscript to choose. Now, as far as the teaching of it, I've already explained, I believe, by and large, what, what Paul's saying. In Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation 
there's no temporal condemnation for those people that walk after the Spirit. Now, for people that walk after the flesh, you can be saved and yield to the old nature, and then you would face a temporal condemnation. We'll talk more about that as we go. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So there's the two operating systems, term you should know very well by now, the two laws, right? How a thing works. How does the Holy Spirit work for people that are in Christ? What kind of life should they expect now that they're in Christ? And then there's the law of sin and death. So I've, I've spelled these two things out for you before, how the law brings rebellion and then death and how grace brings righteousness and life and those those are the two operating systems. Paul says now that I'm saved and I'm in Christ, I can overcome that old operating system. I don't I don't have to operate within those boundaries anymore. Verse number 3. The Bible says for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. What's wrong with the law? Well, we read in chapter 7, might I remind you just quickly, in chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. The law in and of itself, these are commands given by God. There's nothing wrong with what He said, right? And it fulfilled the purpose. It, it was meant to be temporary. It was meant to keep Israel in line, meant to bring them to the Messiah. All of that is... It's, it, it did accomplish that. But if we want to talk about a weakness in the law, it's not the law itself, but it's the people who were trying to keep it. The law could never reach out and make a person or convince a person to turn from sin completely. The law lacked that power. Uh, hold your place here and get Hebrews chapter 8. Let me show you a good cross-reference for this. The law's weakness is the people or are the people who are trying to keep it. Hebrews chapter 8, look with me at verse number 7. Hebrews 8 and verse 7. And the Bible says here, For if that first covenant had been faultless... Now the first covenant, that's the Old Testament law. For if, the first, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So what was the fault of that Old Testament law, that covenant. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, right? It was the people. He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them and so forth. Which, by the way, Hebrews 8, verse 8, that is the attendance code for tonight. Hebrews 8, verse 8. But you can see it's spelled out clearly, finding fault with them. The problem was the people. All right, so come back to Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is Paul giving a nod to the virgin birth. He says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not have sinful flesh. If Jesus would have had a natural birth, if He was the product of Joseph and Mary coming together, then Jesus would have had a sinful nature that had been passed down from Adam to, to all, all humanity. 
but Jesus didn't have a natural birth, obviously. And he looked like everybody else, right? So there's the likeness, but his flesh was free of the sinful nature. Now, the reason this is also important, this is a teaching that you don't find too much anymore, but in the early days of the church, there was a teaching called docetism that moved about very rapidly. And the idea was in docetism that this person, Jesus, wasn't a man at all. He only appeared as a man. He actually didn't have a human body, but he was God walking around looking like a man. And according to docetism, God can't die, God can't suffer, God can't feel pain. So they say that when Jesus was up on the cross, he just made it look like he was suffering. He really didn't suffer. The reason that teaching is quite interesting is some people find issue with the idea that Jesus is God. And they say, but none of the early Christians believed that. That's a teaching that came, you know, in the 300s, in the 4th century. They say the Catholic Church made that teaching up and it's part of the Nicene Creed and all, the, all of that. That's not the case at all. From the, in the earliest days of the church, the idea not only was that Jesus was God and man put together, right, the God-man, but some people went too far and said he was all God and no man at all. So Paul, on occasion, will slip things into his epistles that tells us he did have flesh, but Jesus didn't have a sinful flesh. He didn't have the sinful nature in it. Right, at the end of verse 3, it says, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So, by sending His Son, God made a way for sin to be punished or put down, condemned, to be done away with, to be destroyed. If you want to think of it like that, just flip maybe one page back. Romans 6, verse 6. Let me show you how Paul worded it here knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That is only possible because of what Jesus did for us. The only way to overcome sin, you cannot hand somebody a list of rules and say, the, this is a better list. Now, now do your best to keep it and you'll overcome. There are no set of rules that can do that. The law is too weak. You have to have a personal interaction with God. You have to have the gospel applied to you because that old man has to die. That's the only way to overcome sin. The old man must be crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed. It might be condemned. So God made that possible by sending His Son. Now Romans 8 verse 4, that so one of the reasons God sent His Son, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say that the law might be fulfilled in us. Right? It doesn't say that. It says that the righteousness of the law. Now, the reason that's important is because some people would tell you now that we're saved, we're supposed to go back and because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can go back and keep all of those Old Testament laws. That's not what God intended. He intended by the coming of Jesus Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now we can live right. The righteousness of the law. The law, among other things, was meant to help people live upright lives. 
now that Jesus has come and the Holy Spirit indwells us, all of the righteousness, the, the right things we are supposed to do, whatever the situation demands, yeah, the Holy Spirit can guide us into all truth and into all righteousness wherever we're at, whenever we're at. Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now notice there's a choice involved. As we saw in chapter 6, you, you have a choice to yield yourself, to yield your members as instruments of righteousness or instruments unto iniquity and to uncleanness. So the righteousness, you can do right, you can have a right life, but that'll only happen if you yield to the Spirit, if you walk after Him. In verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Now that word mind, right? Mind the things of the flesh. We would say to somebody, pay attention to this. Take heed. Look at this. The, the Greek word is phroneho, which can also be translated interested in. I find that interesting for this verse. For they that are after the flesh. Can I say this quickly as well? Do you see how there's a standing and state comparison we might uh, be able to bring forth here? They that are after the flesh, that is a state, right? The standing is you're, you're under the law of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. But the state, that's the choice you make on an ongoing basis. If you're after the flesh, following after those things, paying attention to those things, they mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So if somebody is in the flesh, right? That's their standing. Then they're going to pay attention to those the, the things that fall in line with that. In verse 6, he, it, he's going to tell us about the outcome, right? If you are interested in certain things, this is what you can expect, the fruit of it. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death. To be carnally minded, carnal, that's the flesh, is death. Now, we talked about this, what was it, last time, I believe? For a believer, if you've been saved, you have no need to fear the second death. But there are other ways that a believer can still uh, deal with death or, or have death uh, you know, affect him. Physical death, you can die an early physical death. Or there can be a spiritual deadness. Not that you go back to being dead in trespasses and sins. You're, you're joined to the Lord. But that deadness in that you don't bear fruit. The deadness in that you're no longer close to the Lord, enjoying that fellowship. And because God is the source of life, if you're not close to Him, you don't enjoy that, that abundant life. So to be carnally minded, to be paying attention to the things of the flesh, giving the flesh once, what it wants, it's going to leave you feeling empty, dry, dead, frustrated, bitter, and anything else that would fall into that category. It says at the end of verse 6, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's life. You'll find out somebody that tries to be sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in his life. He tries to fall in line with how the Holy Spirit is operating, with what the plan is, what the will of God is for that believer's life. That person is going to feel, I want to say, energized by that. 
they will realize the purpose for God putting human beings on the earth was to enjoy Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy His presence. You only realize that and fulfill that created purpose when you mind the things of the Spirit. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. So even though everything around you might be chaotic, in your heart you can have a peace that passes all understanding because you know you are falling in line with God's plan. You are fulfilling His created purpose for you. Verse 7, he says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Enmity, you can also say hatred. The carnal mind. That's another way of referring to the old nature. The, the, the flesh. It's, it is enmity against God. It hates God. And it says in verse 7, For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now this phrase, the law of God, you might understand that to say it's not subject to the Old Testament laws. That's true. That's true. I think with the way Paul is using it here, it's much like he used it back in chapter 7 and verse 22, the law of God, just how God operates. Like he mentioned in chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the Spirit. It is not subject to the law of God. The flesh will never try to fall in line with the way God operates. But if you understand it limited to the Old Testament law, that is also true. The flesh will not submit to that either. It is not subject to the law uh, law of God, neither indeed can be. You know, over there in James chapter 3, it says the tongue, it's, it's, it's set on fire of hell and no man can tame it. Now, the tongue, the, it, there's an illustration in James 3, it's like the rudder on a ship, right? It'll direct the ship. Now, the tongue can no man tame. Can I say that the flesh, the sinful nature, you can't tame any of it. The tongue is the hardest part of that beast to tame. So of all the members of the body, you're probably going to mess up more with your tongue than anything else. But the, the old nature as a whole, it, you cannot give it a list of rules and try to discipline yourself into a life that will be fully pleasing to God. In verse number 8, you'll see how Paul makes a very definitive statement. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, notice how this is a statement of standing, not state. This is a statement of standing. You are in the flesh. If you are lost, you have not experienced that spiritual circumcision that removed the body of the sins of the flesh, right? Colossians 2 verse 11. We studied that uh, just, just a few days ago. So if you're lost, you are still in the flesh. And it is impossible, therefore, to offer God a life that He would look at as a whole and say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He he cannot be pleased with that person's life as a whole. That is not to say that a lost person is incapable of doing a good thing. They can achieve a good deed. But the life as a whole is not going to be pleasing to God because the Bible says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him, to please God. That person, a lost person, is not living their life in accordance 
with what God has told them, which is what faith is. So even though he might do something that is morally right and help his neighbor on occasion, you know, do right thing. As a whole, he's not doing this because God told him to do it. There's some other motive. There's something that he's leaving out. His life is not going to be complete, and therefore it's not pleasing to God. Guys, the only way, the only way that a person can live a life that is pleasing to God is not to tame the flesh, because that's impossible. It's not to, it's not to decorate it and make it look, look good on the outside. Right? I think Brother Dobbins gave you the illustration a while back about putting makeup and, and uh, jewelry on a pig. Right? That, that's what you're doing when you are lost and try to cover yourself with religion. You're just dressing up the pig. The fact of the matter is you're still a pig. You need to become a new creature in Christ. The only way to live a life pleasing to God is for the flesh to die. It has to die. It must be crucified. Now, we know in God's sight, our standing is, the old man is dead and buried. It is crucified. Now, if you and I want to please God, then we, we need to be spiritually minded. We need to be after the Spirit and mind the things of the Spirit and pay attention to that then we can live a life that God is very pleased with. Right? What does it say there in Amos chapter 3, verse 3? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Right? The way that you walk with God is to agree with Him. So this is equivalent to saying walking by faith. God said it, now I believe it and apply it. Now I'm walking by faith. Alright, verse 9. Notice another standing statement. But ye are not in the flesh. Right? So verse 8, he's talking about lost people. They can't live a life pleasing to God. But ye, save people, but ye are not in the flesh. You're standing. You're not connected. Your soul is not connected to the flesh anymore. He says, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That is, there has been a spiritual connection take place in your life. You have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, right? And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is that Spirit. So now, when it says you're in the Spirit, you have a connection in the spiritual realm to God. You're no longer a slave and in bondage to your flesh. That's your standing. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. So what's the condition for being in the Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, then your standing is you're no longer stuck to the flesh. At the end of verse 9, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell within, if you do not see the work of the Spirit in your life, according to this chapter and, and other verses as well, then there's a good chance you're not saved. Right? That, that is how we would judge the situation. We would look for the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in us. That's why it's very important to study these sort of passages. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. The reason I want to emphasize that just for a moment, because some people teach that you can receive Christ, but not receive the Holy Spirit. So they make those two separate situations, two separate occasions. You can receive Christ, but then you need to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which in their, in their view is the same as receiving the Holy Ghost. 
and they'll often turn to Acts chapter 19, verse 2, and they'll just grab that verse out of its context where Paul asked the people there of Ephesus, uh, just a handful of, of, of people, he asked them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they say, You see, you can believe on Christ, and still you haven't received the Holy Spirit. First of all, in Acts chapter 19, Paul is talking to disciples of Apollos. And Apollos had been preaching the baptism of John. Those people in Acts 19 weren't saved. They hadn't heard of Christ yet. If you read that entire context, you see that. So Paul, as he heard the testimony of those 12 men in Acts 19, something wasn't ringing right. And that's why he said, guys, let me ask you a question. Because there are a couple extraordinary cases in the book of Acts where people believe and then an apostle had to come and lay hands on, on that individual or on that, you know, the individuals in that group and then they could receive the Spirit. But there was always a special, unique, extraordinary circumstance that demanded that extra step. For you and I, Right? The general rule is when you put faith in Christ, at the same moment, the Holy Spirit comes into you. And if, if somebody belongs to Christ, then the Holy Spirit resides within. There is no, there's nothing in Paul's epistles, right? when he speaks about the general rule of how the Holy Spirit enters into us, he never talks about needing that second work of grace. Uh, I'll just remind you of a good verse that goes with this. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14. <clears throat> Galatians 3.14 says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Not laying on of hands, not water baptism, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so back to Romans 8 and verse 10. Romans 8 and verse 10. It says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. This, this is a statement about standing, right? This is your standing. If you're in Christ, the body is dead because of sin. Why did the body have to die? Because that's where the sinful nature resides. So it had to be crucified, dead, buried. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Because you have been, there's a part of you that was washed in the blood. There's a part of you that has been, by the way, washed in the blood. That's what made you righteous. All your sins were washed away. God could properly declare you righteous, which is justified. The Spirit then was able to take your dead spirit and connect you to Jesus Christ, and that's your source of life. So the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Because you have been washed and cleaned, now the Lord is able to actually get together with you. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. This is a verse that speaks directly to the promise of our physical resurrection. The same thing that the Holy Spirit did for Jesus in that the Holy Spirit raised Him from the dead physically, that is what gives us hope that our mortal bodies are going to be fixed. Now, for those that have already died, they're the dead in Christ, right? They are the corruptible 
and they are going to put on incorruption. But we which are alive and remain, that is, we are mortals, we will be given immortality. The new body comes upon us and we get fixed, we get changed in the moment, in the, in the twinkling of an eye. The reason we have this hope is because the Holy Spirit already did it with Jesus. And He is the first fruits of the resurrection. That's something we learn in 1 Corinthians 15. Now the reason this verse is, is uh, good to, to know, the Jehovah Witnesses teach that the resurrection of Jesus was not physical, that His body did not come back from the grave, but He only had a spiritual resurrection. Well, if that's the case, if Jesus came out of the grave and it was only in spirit form, well, then we have no right to think that our physical body is ever going to get any help. Why would we expect a physical resurrection? There'd be no precedent for it. We expect it because it's already happened through Jesus or with Jesus. Now, verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. There's no point in living for it. There's no point in serving it, fulfilling its desires. Two reasons. Number one, it's already dead. Why would you serve a corpse? Now, in God's eyes, it's dead. We need to treat it like that. But number two, what did it ever do for you? What was the fruit of those things that you are now ashamed of? Right? That was the question Paul asked in Romans 6, verse 22. Uh, verse 21, I'm sorry. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Every time you followed the sinful nature, you might have enjoyed it for a short time, but eventually it led to, it led to heartache. It led to frustration, bitterness, depression, all of that bad stuff. You don't owe it anything. So Paul's conclusion is, through the Holy Spirit, we can live a right life. We can, have, we can enjoy that abundant life, the life that God intended for human beings to have. We can have peace in our hearts. We can be pleasing to God. And we can look forward to a physical resurrection where we completely overcome sin. Right? The sinful nature is gone then. He said, now based on everything that the Holy Spirit's doing, this law of the Spirit, we don't owe the flesh anything. We owe God our all. In verse 13, he warns, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Now that is the end of the process. right? Somebody that lives after the flesh, it's not as if you get saved and then if you one time make a mistake and follow the flesh, wham, he drops the hammer and you're dead. What happens is if you live after the flesh and you just keep down that path and you don't judge yourself, you don't confess your sins, there's no repentance, you just follow the flesh, you know where it's going to lead to? It's going to lead to an early grave. Now along the way, you will stop bearing fruit unto God. There'll be that spiritual barren, barrenness. But eventually it's going to lead to an early physical demise. The way Ecclesiastes has it in Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon wrote, You shall die before your time. Be not overmuch wicked and die before your time. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, to mortify means to make dead, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. You can actually add days to your physical life. However, I think Paul has something even broader in view. Just like in the spiritual sense of death, you can have that spiritual deadness. You don't feel a connection to God. You're not bearing fruit. If you mortify the 
deeds of the body, live after the Spirit, yield to Him, then you experience that abundant life. You bring forth the fruit unto God. You enjoy the peace, the joy, the love. All of that stuff comes in, and you can improve your physical life as well. You can actually add days to it. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, you don't want to read this to say, in order to become a child of God, you have to be you, you have to follow the Holy Spirit. You do, we know that we don't achieve the new birth because we submit. We are able, we have the privilege of being led by the Spirit because the new birth has taken place. So one of the evidences that somebody's born again is that he has the privilege of the Holy Spirit now directing his life. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So if you were to ask, now, who are the sons of God? Who are children of God? Right? It says sons because many times in, in the Bible, biblical times, they would just refer to the, uh, the masculine form of the noun. So please don't read anything into that. But he's referring to just the children of God. How do we know who the children of God are? One of the evidences is they will have that privilege of being led by the Spirit. A lost man can't say that. Verse 15. Let me, let me be clear. A lost man won't have the the law of the Spirit operating in his life. He won't have that personal interaction with the Holy Spirit. That's a better way to say it. Verse 15, he says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Right. So the, the spirit that you received when you got saved was not a spirit that would lead you back under the law and lead you back into that system of bondage. Because... If the Holy Spirit were to lead you back under that old system of the law, law brings sin, brings death, well, then you would have reason to fear. But verse 15, you, it says at the end there, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We talked about this in Galatians 4, verse 6. We had that same phrase, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, if you look at it in the Greek manuscript, it's written the Hebrew word Abba, which means Father. And then there's the Greek word for father, which is pater. So it says, Abba, pater. In English, Abba, father. Now, this just shows that when Paul speaks to God, right, his, the language he uses in prayer is the language of his heart. It's his first or his mother's tongue, as you would say. It, it, his natural language was Hebrew. So he would say, Abba, father. Now, because my first language is English, I would just say father. But... What, what we really want to see here in verse 15, we do not need to fear the second death. We do not need to fear that, uh, that our inclusion in the family of God is based on what we're doing. Our inclusion as children of God in, in God's family is based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. We have been baptized and put into Him. And now the fear of the second death is removed. I'm not worried about if I mess up, God's going to remove me from his family. If any man comes to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast him out. Now God can punish me, right? For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Jesus said, uh, if he loves you, he'll rebuke and chasten you. But you don't have to worry about him kicking you out of his family. Not, not based on what you're doing. Verse 16, it says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. What does this mean? How does the Holy Spirit bear witness to our spirit? We can hear the Father talking to us as a father talks to his child, right? I talk to my children differently. I treat them differently than I treat other children. I mean, many of you, you have children in our church. I try to be kind to them, obviously, and, and, and set a good example, and I, I try to interact with them, but it's not going to be the same as the way I interact with my own kids. One of the ways you can recognize who my children are is by listening to how I talk to them and, and watching how I operate in their life. And it's the same thing. I can see a massive difference between the time I was unsaved and the time I'm saved. Because, and, and there are many ways, but when I try to sin now, man, in the old days, I'd try to sin, I'd get excited. Man, I, I, there'd be really not much holding me back. Whew, after you get saved and you try to do some of those old things, whew, the Holy Spirit, He starts talking to you, and He starts saying, oh, man, let's not do that. That's, you, you can hear the Father watching over you saying, Son, please don't go down that path. Do you remember how much that hurt last time? Don't go, don't go there again. That's just one example, but there are many ways that you can see God working. And all of that work that the Father does in your life, treating you like a child, not only does He condemn the bad behavior, but listen, He also affirms good behavior. When you do something that's right, you know what God will say? Well done. Didn't God speak from heaven on two different occasions and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. If you are a child of God and doing right, there will be times when the Holy Spirit bears witness to your spirit and you feel that approval from God. It can happen. You say, Well, I'm not Jesus, so God wouldn't say that to me. <laughs> Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. I realize that we're not Jesus. And there, the, the relationship between the Father and the Son, I realize that it's special and unique. But as a child of God, we can look at how the Father treated His Son. And now that we're children of God, there is going to be some correlation now, for those of you that grew up in a, in a good home with good, godly parents, it, it's so much easier if you have had a, a good parent or good parents that have condemned the wrong, they have rebuked you, but they did it out of love, and then they also affirmed good behavior. It makes it so much easier for that child as they grow up, as they get a, a older and mature and they're on their own. They recognize the work of a good father the work of a good mother. And it makes more sense then when God begins to speak to them in those various ways. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. There are certain things you stand to inherit because you're in the family of God. Now, at the very least, every child of God has access to a new body, right? At the least. That's part of our inheritance. We've talked about this on other occasions. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, especially verse 4, makes that clear. There's another thing you can be sure of. If you're saved, you're in God's family, you will be in the kingdom. 
when Jesus comes back to this earth and rules over the earth, you will be in the kingdom. At the very least, that's true. Now, if you want to have a greater inheritance, if you want to have authority over ten cities, five cities, whatever the reward might be, then you must faithfully serve the Lord and you can add to that base inheritance that everybody gets. Notice in verse 17, If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So if you suffer with Him, so when persecution starts, when the troubles of life begin to kick up, you don't quit. You endure. You faithfully go through that with the Lord, standing for Him. If you are faithful and endure the temptations, then in the millennium, in that kingdom age, you can reign with Him and have a greater position of authority. You say, what happens if I'm not faithful? What happens if when life gets tough and persecution kicks up, I turn my back and I deny the Lord and you know, I don't want to speak His name among my friends because they're not going to take it that well and I'd rather just keep my friends. I don't want to stir up trouble. What about that person? They'll be in the kingdom, but there won't be much glory. Uh, take your Bible. Come to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'd like to show you a few verses here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here are some verses about the resurrection. Now, that's, that's what Paul's talking about here. That part about being glorified together, it, it happens after the resurrection when you go into the kingdom. I want you to notice some things Paul said about it here in 2 Timothy 2. Let's begin at verse 11. He's going to give us three different takes on the resurrection, three different perspectives. In verse 11, he's going to talk about a spiritual resurrection. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. That's something we've been covering so much in Romans 6, 7, and even tonight in chapter 8. Right, that's the spiritual resurrection. Old man dead and buried, new man walking with Christ. Verse 11, If we suffer, if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. You say, but if He's going to deny us, then shouldn't we be afraid? Oh, this is where Scripture interprets Scripture. Romans 8, the same author, Romans 8 verse 15, we've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. I'm not worried about Jesus looking at me and denying me and saying, you're not in the family. If I deny Christ, that is, instead of suffering, right? Here comes persecution, and I, in order to avoid the persecution, deny the Lord. Kind of like Peter did. So I don't know him. Then he will deny me the privilege of reigning with him. I get denied that additional glory of a good position in the kingdom, right? That's what verse 12 is talking about, reigning with Him. That's what you would be denied. Verse 13, if we believe not... Now, forgive me, verse 11 is a spiritual resurrection. Verse 12, conditional rewards in the resurrection. And then verse 13, assurance of the resurrection. If we believe not... So what happens to a Christian that stops believing, gives up the faith? 
If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. God made a promise that if somebody has the Holy Spirit living within him, then the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish a, a particular work. That is, he will conform you to the image of Christ. You may not submit to it during this life, but that means in the resurrection, the work will be completed then. He will bring you back physically from the dead, give you the new body. You'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ and answer for your lack of obedience. You will answer for why you denied the faith. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, God is still going to do what he said he would do. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It says he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. So God's promises, I believe that is where we get the basis for eternal security. It's not a matter of me holding on to God. It's a matter of God holding on to me. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he says, I know you're going to endure some tough times. And as you, if you look down at the end of the chapter, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Paul knows that these people have the potential for a lot of sufferings. He says, guys, weigh it out. You can suffer a little now. And yes, if you stand for Christ, people are going to laugh at you. They're going to throw things at you. They're going to whip you, they're going to beat you, they're going to stone you, you might die. But just remember that's temporary. That's nothing compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Oh, can you imagine? Yes, it's painful. And when we have story after story of people that have endured horrible persecution, but can you imagine on the day of the resurrection when they stand at the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus gets to look at them and he, he goes through their life and he says, you know, nobody on earth ever appreciated you. They never recognized just how important your life's work was. They didn't understand why you stood for what you did. But they'll understand it eventually. That same person that was the off-scouring of all things, the scum of the world, one day will have a position of authority in that kingdom and everybody will see God was in favor of that person. The glory that's going to be revealed in us. It is worth all the heartache. It's worth all the frustration. It's worth the persecution. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now Paul is going to begin to branch out a little bit. He's not only going to discuss our physical resurrection and how our body will be fixed, but how all of creation is going to be fixed. Now just let me point this out quickly. In verse 19, you see the word creature. Verse 20, the word creature. Verse 21, the word creature. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation. It's the same Greek word, right? When you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, now if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Same Greek word. It can be translated creation. It's done. It's, it is translated creation in verse 22. So you can think of it like that, but creature is a perfectly acceptable word. A creature is a created thing. 
That's what it is, a created living entity. We often think of a creature as a living entity, whether it's an animal or a person. But creature, any created being, any created thing, it fits into that category. Now, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature. So all of creation. We're talking the trees, the dirt, the water, the animals, all of it. Waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Why are they waiting for us? He's going to explain it now, but let me just quickly point it out. The manifestation of the sons of God, if I understand the timing of the rapture correctly, right? And that is, we go up to heaven and then there's seven years of tribulation. Listen, you can put the, tribula uh, put the uh, rapture somewhere else. It really doesn't change this truth at all. But if the rapture happens, we are going to be caught up in a moment, the blink of an eye, not a, the twinkling of an eye, nobody's going to see it. Right? The earth isn't going to see it. Boom, we're gone. The manifestation of the sons of God, we are openly revealed. Right, The, the glory that will be revealed, that's when we come back riding on white horses and then the world gets to see us. That's the manifestation of the sons of God. So that you have to think of as the second coming of Christ. And when Jesus comes back, we know there's a battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist is destroyed. And we know there, there's a lot that goes into that. But creation is earnestly expecting something to happen when we are manifested to the world. Our full potential. right? Not just this the saved sinner that proclaims Christ, but the fully realized plan of God, me, you, with a glorified body, riding on those white horses, coming back. The whole world will be able to see it then. And when that happens, the Bible makes it clear that God is going to reset the world. It's called the regeneration. And He is going to turn the earth back into a paradise. Now this we, we studied recently, what was it, in Matthew class, I think. I showed you some verses in Ezekiel chapter 36 where the prophet was told, preach to the mountains. And I showed you there how the land will be like the land of Eden. God turns it back into a paradise. Verse 20, it says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Now, forgive me, we're just running short of time. I want to just cover these few verses. But can I give you a good cross-reference just quickly? 1 John 3, verse 2. This, this pertains to the manifestation of the sons of God. Let me read it to you quickly. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So that's... When Jesus comes, we get that new body. And then when we come back, we're, it's manifested to the world. So that's a good cross-reference. Now, in Romans 8, verse 20, the creature was made subject to vanity. That word vanity, you can th also think of it as depravity or a curse. The creature was made subject to vanity. When mankind, that is Adam and Eve, fell into sin, God had to bring creation down a notch. And it wasn't creation's fault, not willingly. Right? It's not like creation said, God, would you please do this to us? God, God enforced it. And as the sovereign of the universe, He's able to do such a thing. 
But when he brought creation down a notch and paradise was lost, he also gave, gave his creation a promise. Don't worry, this is temporary. I'm going to fix this. So the creature was made subject to vanity. It was subject to this, just like humanity has a depraved nature, creation also, what we would call nature, it has a curse. It, it is depraved in, in its own sense. Now there's two thoughts on this. It could be that man no longer deserved a paradise to live, uh, to, you know, to live in that beautiful situation, so God brought nature down to man's level to give him what he deserved. That's, that's very possible that, it, that that was the reason for it. Or it could be that man in a fallen condition was no longer able to keep up with nature in that original state. And nature would have just maybe grown too much and become too cumbersome for that fallen man. And therefore God had to bring it down and even it out. Either way, I'm, both things could be true to be honest with you, but either way, nature is under a curse. Now, we know this in Genesis 3, right? God told Eve, you're going to have pain in childbearing. So the natural process of reproduction, there's a lot of pain involved. And then also he told Adam, he said, this ground, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. He said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going you're gonna to get your food. And ever since the fall, nature hasn't worked the way God intended it. Not perfectly. It's still beautiful, right? Wow, some parts of it are just awesome. But you have a lot of various problems in it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Let me move quickly here. Verse 21, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. That's another way of just saying vanity. The bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So just like we will be freed from our corruption through virtue of that sinless body, that glorified body, one day the curse that is on nature will be lifted. And it will be, let's say, glorified or set back to that paradisical situation. Now, it says that God has subjected the same in hope. We have hope of a physical resurrection because of what Jesus did, right? Why does creation have hope? Why would creation look at Jesus on the cross and think, now I know that God is going to fulfill His promise and lift the curse of nature. What was Jesus wearing on the cross? They took all of His clothes, but there was one thing He was wearing. He had a crown, and that crown was made of thorns. And you know what the, one of the signs of the curse on nature was? Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. One of the ways that man knows the earth is cursed is because it brings forth pain and suffering. It brings forth thorns. And Jesus wore the thorns, the curse of nature. He bore it on the cross as well. So nature can look at the cross and say, we have hope. We know that we're a part of what He did and we're going to get fixed. In verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. In what way does creation groan? Earthquakes, hurricanes, sinkholes, viruses. These are all natural disasters, right? And, and creation groans. It says, oh, how long? 
how long till we sing that glad song? Verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also. You're also a natural disaster. Amen. <laughs> but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. What are the first fruits of the Spirit? We're led by Him. We have that witness within. We have that, that uh, reminder not to go back to our old life. He deals with us as with children. That's the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption, to wit, that means to know, the redemption of our body. So we know because of this spiritual work that is going on within us, that is evidence that we've been born of God, and that gives us hope, that gives us assurance that one day the Holy Spirit will finish the entire process by fixing this body. So, on the day of the rapture, the body gets redeemed or fixed. Your soul has been saved, your spirit is born again, but the body... It's dead and buried, but one day, right, it gets saved. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope. Well, not your soul. Your soul was saved by faith, but your body is saved by this blessed hope. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Well, now I want to say this is an obvious statement. Paul clears it up, or I say further clarifies, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? If that thing is there in front of you, no need to hope for it. It's there. It's happened. Well, I don't see myself in this glorified body, in this perfect state yet. So that's why I'm still waiting for it to happen. Verse 25, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We know that what the Holy Spirit has started within us will finally culminate with our physical bodies getting fixed. We get a new body with no sin in it. So to close this lesson, I, I want to save the second half of chapter 8 for next week. Let, let me talk about the three parts of salvation. Salvation, you can think of it in saving you from three different things. Number one, it saves you from the penalty of sin. Right? Then it saves you, and that, that is that, that second death. You're saved from the penalty of sin. And number two, it saves you from the power of sin. That is, on your, in your daily life. You can overcome sin by yielding to the Spirit. And then number three, you can be saved. One day you will be saved from the presence of sin. That is, when God catches us away and changes your body, you no longer have that sinful nature anywhere near you. So you have been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. You are being saved every day as you yield to the, from the power of sin. One day you will be saved from the presence of sin. All right. Thank you for a few extra minutes. This is, like I said, Romans 8. There's so much to cover in it. We only covered half the chapter, so I appreciate your patience tonight. All right. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me personally. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and I look forward to our next lesson on Tuesday. God, thank you for allowing us to take this time tonight and to cover these things. And Lord, I'm sure that we could go on and on about the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, there's so much still that we need to learn. I think, Lord, that at the same time I can say that we've learned enough that we can be busy and concerned about applying what we've learned. Help us to do that. Lord, please don't let the seed that was sown fall by the wayside tonight. Let it fall into good ground. Lord, I pray that you please keep your hand upon each student, upon each person that's listened tonight. 
Bring us back Tuesday again, ready, hungry for more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, hope you have a wonderful evening further.